I'm so glad you all are here tonight. Uh, my parents are in town, Bob and Brenda Crawford, and they are seated just to my right over here by Cheryl. So be sure to talk to them afterwards, tell them what a great pastor I am. Um, but I'm glad you're here tonight. I'm, I'm excited. Because they're here, I, I studied ahead this week, so I'd have a little bit a little bit extra time to, to spend with them and, and see them and not be off studying in my office. And so I know what we're talking about tonight and on Sunday, Sunday's sermon is already written and, and studied out, and I, I finished that yesterday and I thought, oh, I want to talk about that. And then this morning I went back and kind of looked over these notes and I thought, oh, but I want to talk about this too. So really, you're going to get the best of both. Because you're here tonight, and you're here tonight, and then here again on Sunday morning, you're going to get the full deal of Hezekiah and it's good stuff. Good stuff, very encouraging. I hope you find tonight's as encouraging as I have, especially because you're going to hear about an embattled king and how he handles that. And I think that fits real well with the, uh, with the life that we live, especially when we feel often embattled by our enemy. But we'll get there in just a moment. I, I want to pray one more time, if you'll indulge me in that, and let's just go to the Father. Lord, you are so good to us. And just being in this time of worship, to be still and to know that you are God, to recognize, as your word says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And Father, in our noise and our clamoring and our loudness, and Father, especially in the raging of the nations, it is hard for us to be silent before you. But I truly believe, Lord, when we're in your presence, when we see you, for the first time when we are before your throne we will be silent and then we're going to burst out in praise and then we'll be silent I, I can't even imagine Father how we'll make up our minds between the absolute awe that would silence any man and the joy that would burst out in praise but for our part Father we pray that you will teach us how to be still before you and regardless of the railings and raging of the enemy, show us what it means to be men and women of faith. Pray that you will pour your word into our hearts tonight, that it will overflow, and that we will go out of here ready to be doers and not hearers of the word only. Fathers, we often pray, make the book alive to us and ourselves alive to the truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be in 2 Kings 18. The southern kingdom of Judah is all that's left. A remnant of the children of Israel who the Lord rescued from Egypt and led to the promised land some 700 years before this time. It's a tragedy really. The story of Israel and the story of the Jewish people is the greatest tragedy in the history of the world with the exception of the passion of Jesus Christ on the cross. The great tragedy of Israel is that when that happened, the crucifixion, there wasn't a wholesale acceptance of Jesus as Messiah. As the Anointed One, the Mashiach of God, He was missed by so many. That's, that's the tragedy. But prior to that time, we see a people who God raised up, birthed really, through Abraham... And he raised them up and he grew them up and, and brought them, protected them, brought Abraham into the land, grew his family. And by the time they were 70 people strong, led them down into Egypt, even there to protect them from famine. Across 400 years of captivity in Egypt, the people of Israel, of Jacob, they began to learn that the only person they could truly trust was God. He led them out of there, as you remember, with Moses, into the promised land, across that wilderness, Joshua comes into the scene. They come into the land in a massive conquest. The Lord goes before them and gives them the land, calling upon them to wipe out the pagans around them. And now we can see why. Because they didn't wipe out the pagans around them. The problems that wiped out Israel, as we studied last week, occurred. The people chased after the pagan idols. And they did all the things that God told them to wipe the nations out ahead of them for doing. 
I want you to go on the land, man, because they're so sick and so sinful and, and they're so idolatrous, I want you to wipe them out. So Israel goes in there, doesn't wipe them out, and does the same thing that the wicked heathen nations did before them. Well, Israel ends up in 722 B.C. in captivity, ceasing to exist as a nation. With the exception of four verses referencing her exile in Assyria, the rest of 2 Kings deals only with Judah, for Judah is all that's left, the kingdom of Judah in the south. From 2 Kings 18 through the end of the chapter, we see the last 136 years of the existence of Judah as a nation, before in 586 B.C., Babylon will come in and take them into captivity. And as we've talked about before, 70 years later they come back. But they are a weakened people, a vassal nation, and they will never be much more than that, literally until 1948. But that's another teaching for another time. 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, we look at the people of Judah. And a new king. It came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, or Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So that after him, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. That's significant. This is the best of the best of the kings, second only to David. For he clung, verse 6, to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. Well, we met Hezekiah in our, Sunday on, uh, our study on Sunday morning. A king in Judah who lived up to the gold star of David, that standard that God set. Remember, the Lord said to all the kings, beginning with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, He said, if you'll walk in the way of your father David, my servant David, if you'll walk like him, then I will be with you and I will bless you and you and your sons will sit on the throne. But they didn't walk in the way of David. The massive number of the kings, 39 in all, and of the 39, 8 will actually be decent. Three will walk like David walked. It's a tragedy. But this greatness was a standard that the Lord declared through David. We see it in verse 3. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And what was that? What was right like David? He had a heart for God. He clung to the Lord. He was intimately in relationship with God the Father. It wasn't just about religion. It wasn't just doing things by rote. It wasn't even just the work of his hands. It was the trust and the faith of his heart. We saw Asa before him was similar to Hezekiah. Josiah would be similar after him. We'll come up to Josiah in a few chapters. But we studied this on Sunday morning. Bucking public opinion, Hezekiah tore down the high places. He smashed the idols in the land. He shattered that long-held sacred relic, the brass serpent on a stick, Nehushtan. And if you were here Sunday, you may remember, Nehushtan means a mere piece of brass. Sounds impressive, but it was just a piece of brass. We talked about this on Sunday. It's interesting, I got an email from, from Tom Shorthouse. And Tom said, uh, was talking about the teaching and, and had some comments, and he said, boy, I hope you don't take any flack for this because, you know, this is the kind of teaching that might have upset some people. And I didn't even think it was. So I read the email, which was supposed to be encouraging, and I walked away going, what did I say? <laughs> what was so bad? We simply called idolatry what idolatry was. Not our houses and our cars and our stuff. Okay, we're greedy. Okay, and we're selfish. And we're sinful people. But it is too simple in my mind for a pastor to stand up and say, idolatry is the car you're driving. That's easy. The truth is, idolatry is much more subtle than that. Idolatry is anything that we idolize. It could be a man, an American idol. It could be a moment, 
No, now go back to that a second. You know what's interesting to me? American Idol, what happens? You have hundreds of thousands of people who watch the show and then someone wins. And depending on who it is, people now emulate that person. Want to be like that person. That's idolatry. We don't think of it that way, but it truly is. We idolize something. We put a person on a pedestal and say, that's the standard, that's the measure, that's who I want to be like. When the Bible calls us to be like Jesus and no other. Idolatry can be a man. It can be a moment. You may have been involved in some church movement that was stunning and phenomenal and God did powerful things in that moment. But like the people of Israel who clung to that brass serpent, He did a powerful thing with that. In the moment when Moses lifted up the brass serpent and the people looked at it in faith, they were healed. Wow, what an amazing thing. But it was a moment then. It was not to be carried on and carried on and carried on. And that's the problem with some traditions and movements is that they become for us our whole worship. The Reformation movement, which was a wonderful move back toward the Scripture and away from some of the, some of the religion that the church had gotten so wrapped up in, the rest, Reformation movement itself, in many places, has become an idol. Because we've got to do Martin Luther's thing. We've got to do John Calvin's thing. Those guys were men. And they weren't always right. I've shared with you before, Luther was a raging anti-Semite. I don't see that in Scripture. And so it can be a man, it can be a moment, it can be a movement to which, to which we cling. Idolatry is anything that we exalt to a high place between us and the Lord. What was Hezekiah's answer to all that? He clung to the Lord. We don't need no brass serpents. We don't need no high places. We don't need anything that would come between us and the Lord. We need to cling to God the Father. And that's what Hezekiah did. That's why he receives that gold star standard of David. Now some might say, well yeah, but it's easy to cling to the Lord when life is easy. Anybody can hold on to and, and that's true. I'll tell you what, on Wednesday nights when I'm standing up here teaching, this is the easiest time all week for me to be faithful. It's really hard for me to sin here on a Wednesday night. I'm telling you, Sunday morning, same thing. I find it difficult to sin in the middle of worship. But when life gets hard, and someone could look at Hezekiah and say, see, if life was hard on Hezekiah, then I might think he was a faithful guy. Well, then you would be right. Because Hezekiah's reign is anything but easy. He is a great leader in days of dread and times of terror. Verse 9. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Allah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of three years, they captured it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, so now he's 31 years old, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was captured. Now let that sink in, because you've got little kingdom of Judah here. You've got the larger kingdom of Israel to the north that is at least a buffer between you and the Aramaeans and beyond them the Assyrians. But now there's no buffer. Now the Assyrians are bearing down on your little kingdom, Hezekiah. It tells us then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile in Assyria and it was brutal and it was ugly the way they did it. And put them in Hala and in Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they would neither listen nor do. During his first six years of reign, Hezekiah and the people of Judah watched Assyria overrun and oust Israel. The entire region of Israel became an ominous dark storm cloud just bearing down, piling up on the horizon and threatening an end to the nation of Judah. Can you imagine if Canada fell to Al-Qaeda? That's what we're talking about. Your borders covered with a heinous enemy that wants your destruction and this is early in the reign of Hezekiah. Well, tonight we're going to witness the maturation of Hezekiah's trust in the Lord. Don't get too impressed with Hezekiah because anybody who comes to the Lord is going to have to grow up in the Lord. As a 25-year-old guy, he loved the Lord. He clung to the Lord and God was with him and he prospered. And he thumbed his nose at the king of Assyria. We're told that back in verse, verse 7. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. Well, it's easy to do because you got the buffer zone up there. Ah, Assyria, whatever. 
Probably shouldn't have done it. But he was young. He loved the Lord. He knew God was with him. So there's a bit of cockiness there that changes pretty quickly. Look at verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, now he's 39, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And then Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. (laughs) Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. He's backing down real fast now. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, of Ju- uh, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver. That would be 11 tons of silver. And 30 talents of gold. That would be a ton of gold. A lot of precious metal. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Back in verse 7, we're told Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria. What changed his mind? Simple. Proximity. (laughs) It was easy to rebel early on. But now that the king of Assyria wanted his throat, he very quickly backpedals. Anyone can face down an enemy hundreds of miles away. Anybody can face down the enemy, by the way, when the enemy is attacking someone else and not you. It's real easy as Christians to look at another Christian who's really suffering and struggling and and give them all kinds of words of faith and boldness and courage because it's not you. But when it's you, it's a different story, isn't it? When we're the ones who are under attack, when we're the ones dealing with tragedy or strife or difficulty in our lives, it's a very different thing. I'm going to give you several things to note in the story of Hezekiah tonight. And the first one is simply this. Hezekiah's faith is faltering. His faith is faltering. Has God changed? The same God who was prospering Hezekiah and with him wherever he went, has God changed? Not in the least. So what's changed? Just Hezekiah's faith. I'm alone in this now. Quick, clear out the temple. Clear out the king's treasuries. Peel the gold off the doors. We've got to give him everything that we've got to, to, to appease the enemy. Like I said, it's easy to stand with integrity in, in here, but true faith is developed and expressed when you're facing the enemy yourself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. The Lord says, My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. We are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And John says in 1 John 5 verse 4, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Your strength. Your intelligence. Your strategies and your plans. No, this is the the thing that overcomes the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, the good news, Hezekiah does believe. He's just having a weak moment. Don't be too hard on him. His faith is faltering a bit. He still believes. But I love this verse, and we share it in here often, 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that's an encouraging, encouraging thought. We will falter. Count on it. But the Lord is always faithful. So Hezekiah falters a bit. And he does something we've talked about before. Number two, not only is his faith faltering, but now Hezekiah feeds the flesh. He feeds the flesh. He appeases the Assyrians' appetite. By the way, Sennacherib, his name, literally means sin multiplies brothers. Now, sin, the word sin there is the moon god Sin, who is the god of Assyria. It's one of the main gods that they worship, the god of the moon, who's named Sin. But it's interesting that that name Sin, the name Sinachera, means sin multiplies brothers. What happens when you feed the flesh? What happens when you appease the enemy? Does it make him go away? When we feed our own sin, does it help take care of it? The alcoholic who said, well, you know what, I'm just going to have one more drink and that'll, take, that'll make me feel better for now. Does it make the sin go away? No. When we feed the flesh, the flesh gets more hungry. You cannot appease the flesh. Proverbs 22, verse 8 says, He who sows iniquity will reap vanity. I told you last week, I believe, that the word vanity in the Hebrew is emptiness. 
He who sows iniquity will reap emptiness. In other words, sin gives nothing but takes everything. And the more we feed our flesh, the hungrier our flesh will get. I was talking with my mom earlier today and she asked the question, what makes for a pathological liar? And I said, Mom, are you and Dad having problems? <laughs> Something we should talk about. What makes for a pathological liar? I'll tell you what the answer is. I thought about that, Mom. One lie yeah. is what makes for a pathological liar. A pathological liar doesn't start, doesn't come out of the womb, and then the first words are a lie. Followed by a lie, and you just can't help it. I can't stop. Oh, no. No, it starts with one lie that maybe gets someone out of a sticky situation. Okay. That worked for me. And then another lie. And more and more. What makes for a pathological liar one lie? Which is why the Apostle Paul wrote the following, Romans 13, 14. He said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Give the flesh nothing. Don't make it easy for yourself to sin. Because the more you appease the flesh, the hungrier it's going to get. Verse 17. So Hezekiah does this. He tries to appease the king of Assyria. Does this make the king of Assyria go away? Absolutely not. Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabseras and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. And they went up and they came to Jerusalem. And when they came up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the fuller's field. A fuller is, a, is someone who washes clothes. And so there's an area where there's water that would come down and they'd wash clothes there. And when they called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, they came out to meet them. So we're having a little powwow here. And verse 19, thus, or then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? And for the next 35 verses, this guy named Rabshakeh is raging. Like I told my, my family earlier, if I was going to title this teaching anything, it would be the raging of Rabshakeh. This guy is, he's kind of like the, um, the press secretary for Sennacherib. He's the voice. He's the mouthpiece. And so he's come down with his two cronies and with the vast army of the Assyrians all around behind them, great massive numbers and strength, and he begins to rage against Judah and against the Lord. And he'll do it for the next 35 verses, a big mouth speech that's designed to erode the confidence of the people of Judah in the Lord. 35 verses of this guy just going off against God and Judah. Now... I believe that everything that's in the Bible is God-inspired. I believe it's the literal Word of God and that He hand-picked and hand-chosen and hand-selected every word that's in there. I truly do believe that. I don't believe they're metaphorical or allegorical stories. Unless the Bible tells us so, Jesus told parables that we know were stories. But otherwise, I believe it's completely true. And as we've talked about before, I believe the Bible bears itself out to be true. But that being the case, why would God let this pagan guy, this Rabshakeh, why would he let him rage for 35 verses of precious scripture? Well, part of the reason is I think God's allowing him just enough rope to hang himself with. He's giving him plenty of rope. Go ahead, speak your peace. Say what you think is on your mind. Impress us with your great words. And then we'll see what really comes of it. Rabshakeh here is going to make six arguments as to why Judah should surrender. Argument number one, if you want to jot these down, is a geopolitical argument. A geopolitical argument. Verse 19. Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed on Egypt, on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. A geopolitical argument. What Rabshakeh is saying is, Hezekiah, I know you have a loose alliance with Egypt. I know you're looking to the south for horses and for chariots and for help. It's not going to do you any good. Because you know as well as I know that this Egypt is just going to pierce you in the hand. That this Egypt is just going to snap back at you. Why would Rabshakeh say this? Well, likely he had heard the teachings and the prophecies of the prophet named Isaiah. Who was prophesying at this time. And in Isaiah chapter 30 verse 1, 
The Lord said, Woe to this rebellious children who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to make refuge or to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. See, at this time, Isaiah is prophesying to Judah and to Hezekiah, saying, Don't lean on Egypt. This is a bad move. They are not going to help you. At the last moment when you cry out for help, they're going to snap back. Don't trust in the horses and the chariots of Egypt, Isaiah says later. Trust in the Lord. And so Isaiah is prophesying all this. Word is getting out. And apparently Rabshakeh knows about this alliance and he argues this geopolitical argument, it's going to fail. Your coalition is of no use to you. Egypt is as flimsy as a broken reed. And he's right. Which reminds us of something, by the way. But the enemy will even use the truth if it serves his advantage. And so Rabshakeh starts off with a truthful statement. Egypt can't help you. But he's undermining Judah. Second, second argument, a theological argument. A theological argument, verse 22. He says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places... And whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. (laughs) A theological argument. What this proves, though, is the pagan mindset of Rabshakeh. The Assyrians did not get it. They're looking from a distance and they see this King Hezekiah rise in Judah. And they see him start to tear down the idols and the places of worship and the gods so-called of the Jewish people. Not recognizing that none of those things were God, but they thought they were. So as the high places come down, and even that brass serpent is snapped and and shredded into pieces, and everything's destroyed, they don't get that these things were not representative of Yahweh. So Rabshakeh says, look, your own king has just destroyed your hope. Your belief in all your gods is gone now. Where are you going to go? For theological help. The world never does get it, do they? This guy's arguing against something he has no idea about. He doesn't understand. And so often, the enemy will call out from the world and from people in the world and try to undermine Christianity saying, your churches are a shambles or, or your belief systems are messed up or, or, and, and try and pick at things that they think are Christian but they truly are not. The truth is, there's one thing that is truly Christian. Jesus Christ. And our faith in Him. The rest of it, all the things that cause us to denominationalize and split apart and all that, that's just man's ideas. The focus and the reliance on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that's what it's all about. But the world doesn't get it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so... Have some patience when you're talking to someone who is not a believer in Jesus. Be patient knowing they might not really understand what you're saying. They might not, what do you mean a relationship with Jesus? How do I have that? What's that about? Which is why sometimes the best witness we have is just the lives that we live. Let people see what's different before you tell them what's different. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Rabshika's theology and his theological argument here is twisted and it's man-centered, which indicates to me that he probably was trained in a nice seminary somewhere. Verse 23. (laughs) Verse 23. Now therefore come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your own part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? The next argument here, number three, is a dimensional argument. A dimensional argument. He's saying, trust in us and we'll give you horses. You probably don't even have enough guys to ride our horses. He's saying, look at the vast and sheer size of the Assyrian army. You guys don't have a prayer. The size of of Assyria versus little Judah, it's intimidating. And by the way, this is a classic enemy argument. Look at the size of your problems. Look at what you have to deal with. It's too big. You can't handle it. 
It's too much. It's overwhelming. You can't fight it. Romans 8.31, Paul said, What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who's against us? How big can the problem really be if I've got God on my side? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. It doesn't matter how big our problems are. If our problems are as big as the vast Assyrian army, they're still not too big for God. But the enemy is going to tell you they are. Your stuff, your failures, your mistakes, your difficulties, they're too big. They're just going to wipe you out. You cannot possibly overcome them. And what the enemy misses is, he's right, we can't overcome them, but we have a God who can. And very simply, when we put our trust there, the problems are no big deal. 1 John 4, 4, Creator is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Well, the next argument, Rabshika is now going to use God's word to play off the guilt of the people. Watch this. It's a number four, a pseudo-biblical argument. Verse 25. Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? No. He says, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, by the way, the people of Israel at this point, you'll see this in a second, they're starting to gather around. They're starting to listen to the rantings and the ravings of this, of this guy. And as they're listening, it begins to erode their faith and undermine things. And people at that point could have been asking, Is that right? Is it possible that Assyria is God's hand of judgment against us? I mean, they just took out Israel. And the prophets told us the reason they were going to take out Israel was Israel's sin. Maybe this is God's judgment. And very stealthily, this Rabshakeh, this clever negotiator, introduces false guilt into the people. He uses scripture, most likely again on what he's heard Isaiah prophesying for years, that the Lord would send Assyria against the land of the Jews if they didn't repent. He says, I haven't come here on my own. Your God sent me. He says, look at it, verse 25, The Lord said to me, again translated clearly, it's not just the Lord, it's Yahweh said to me. He names Judah's God. Yahweh said to me, come down here and take you out. So the people are thinking, is that true? Is that possible? Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Isaiah said, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation. And against the people of my wrath I will give him charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So Isaiah did say that. But remember, this is the enemy talking and it is a pseudo-biblical argument in that he only gives part of the story and not the whole thing. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 12 The Lord says, So it will be that when the Lord has completed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For He has said, By the power of My hand and My wisdom I did this, for I have understanding. And I removed the boundaries of the people and plundered their treasuries. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. Isaiah 10 verse 20 He says, Now in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Judah who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And here's the thing, gang. The enemy loves to use partial scripture to undermine our faith. Don't give the whole thing. Just give part of it. He did it with Jesus. Remember in the temptations in Matthew chapter 4, he said, Hey, jump off the temple and he will give his angels charge concerning you. But he stops there and he misquotes it. He leaves out the part where the psalmist wrote, as long as you're walking in God's ways. As long as you're walking in the ways of the Father, he'll give his angels charge over you to protect you. Not if you go out and do something on your own. Satan, he purposefully misquotes the word to the word. 
which is kind of a stupid thing to do. You think Jesus is going to miss it? He doesn't. He catches him in the act. This is, by the way, why we purpose to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. We go verse by verse, trying to look at the entire Scripture in its fullness, not just picking out certain things and saying, let's talk about this this week and give it a human slant. And the truth is, gang, the Lord does punish. But not for the purpose of destruction. The Lord doesn't punish just for the fun of punishment. Ever heard someone going through hard times say, God must just be punishing me? I hear that a lot. I like to say, you're assuming that God is punishing you, and you're embracing some guilt here. Is it based in reality? Is it based in truth? Maybe God's not punishing you at all. The Rabshika is trying to get the people of Judah to think this is a punishment for the lives that we've been living. Ezekiel 33.11 says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. See, what we take as punishment, oh, God's just slapped my hand because I'm a sinner, is actually the Lord disciplining for the purpose of bringing us to repentance so that we can be saved, which is His greater purpose. He didn't send Assyria down to wipe out Israel and to wipe out Judah. He sent Assyria down to give a strong message. And when Israel refused to repent, they got wiped out. But guess what? Judah does repent. And in our story, which we'll finish Sunday, you're going to see what God does to Assyria, even though Assyria was supposed to be the rod of his anger. The discipline of the Lord is always about bringing people back to him. It's never discipline for discipline's sake. God is not the father who sees the child walking by and just feels like hitting him. Whack! What did you do that for, Dad? Just in the mood. You're just bugging me. He doesn't do that. Hebrews 12.7 God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He disciplines us for, his own, for our own good so that we may share his holiness. But, like I said, at this time the Jewish people are listening in. And these arguments are flowing out of this raging mouth of Rabshikeh. Verse 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshikeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of all the people who are on the wall. Verse 27. But Rabshikeh said to them, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words? And not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? (laughs) Yes, it's in the Bible. Verse 28. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord, that is Yahweh, will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. This is great. And come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine and a land of bread and vineyards and a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you saying the Lord will deliver us. Number five, a transportational argument. This is by far Rabshakeh's weakest argument as he attempts to sound like a glorified travel agent. Hey, listen. Listen. Sign up with me. Hang with me. And for a season, you can eat under your own olive trees and, and, and be at peace and relax. And then, you know, until I come and, and remove you from your land. You notice how he inserts that in there. You can stay here in peace until. And that's the way the enemy always works. It'll be fine until. But then he says, until I take you back to another land, just like this, by the way, flowing in milk and honey, it's got great trees and rivers, and you'll love it. It's just, it's beautiful. You gotta go. A transportational argument. Come vacations in Nineveh. Yeah, right. When the, the Assyrians conquered a country, the first thing they did was chop off a massive number of heads and pile them up in a huge heap around the capital cities. That was step one of a deportation process. 
And then step two was to take fish hooks and either put them through the nose or the mouth or the cheek of the people that they were carrying off into captivity and in a long line drag them through the desert by these fish hooks. And if the hook ripped out of a nose, well, they would just put it in the other cheek and they would continue to reinsert it anytime there was a problem. Nahum chapter 3 verse 1 said, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage, her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. What did Rabshakeh say? Oh, wait until we come take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Liar! All lies. By the way, this is another uh, lie of the enemy. In fact, it's the oldest lie in Satan's limited playbook. What did he say to Eve? What did the serpent say to her in the garden? When she said... We can't eat of this fruit because God said if we eat of this fruit, the day we eat, we eat it, we'll surely die. What did the, the serpent say? You won't die. You will not die. You'll live. And that's the same argument of Rabshika, that you may live and not die. Satan loves to use this one. It's not going to hurt you. You'll be fine. It's nice over here. And it's the oldest lie in Satan's playbook, Genesis 3-4. The last argument he uses now in verse 33 is a geotheological argument. It's a land argument connected to theology. Check this out, verse 33. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? So at that time, Assyria was dominant and had been wiping out nations all around. Verse 34, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? In other words, the god of Samaria didn't deliver your own brothers up there in Israel. Who are among all the gods of the lands who have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord, Yahweh, should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Unbelievable raging against God. Now he's going head to head with God the Father. You can't even secure your people. You can't save them, he says. Incredible. Each one of these six arguments are satanic. They're the same ones Satan uses today to try and undermine our faith and intimidate the people who believe. The geopolitical argument saying there's no one there to help you, not Egypt or anyone else. Theological argument, there's no religion on which you can lean. A dimensional argument, your problems are, are too big, too large for you to handle. That pseudo-biblical argument, God is punishing you and not for your own good. The transportational argument, the grass is always greener over here. And finally, a geotheological argument, God didn't deliver them, he won't deliver you. Which, by the way, is the reason I point out Israel so often. If God is not going to rescue his people Israel, what makes us think he'll rescue us? But he has protected through the years the Jewish people in spite of massive odds against them. The fact that the Jewish people even survived the Holocaust is absolutely one of the greatest miracles of our time. But you see, if God was faithless to the Jewish people, why do we think we're so special that he would suddenly be faithful to us? But see, he is faithful whenever he makes a promise. Verse 36 tells us the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was do not answer him. And then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah who was over the household and Shebna the scribe and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. In other words, Hezekiah, we are so busted. We are in major trouble. This is bad news. But gang, Rabshika is a blowhard. He's a big mouth carnival barker throwing out all kinds of arguments and they're all weak and they're all flimsy in the face of an awesome God. He's an overconfident press secretary with a superiority complex. He should write a book. Psalm 2 verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage? Which is exactly what this guy is doing. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, that is, Mashiach. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Is he raging against the Lord? Or his people is always a foolish thing to do. And the raging of Rabshika indicates a dangerous arrogance, which we continue to see in the geopolitical climate of today. Look at the nations round about. Listen to the mouth of Ahmadinejad of, of Iran. Listen to his raging against the Lord. It's just like Rabshika. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 2 verse 10, he said, Therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled and as a matter of fact Revelation chapter 6 is called the wrath of the Lamb the wrath of the Son of God how blessed are all who take refuge in him so how does Hezekiah handle all this at first his faith was faltering as we saw and then he fed the enemy wrong move but now in the face of a no-win scenario, I love what Hezekiah does. This is the third thing of the big main points here. Hezekiah falls silent before the enemy. Look again at verse 36. The people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, Do not answer him. And my friends, that's godly counsel. Pay close attention to this. This may be the command of our king as well. What do you mean? What do you do when the enemy is baiting you? When, when Satan's tempting you or, or trying to draw you down a path or going head to head with you, are you among those who would call out and try to name Satan and go head to head with him? I would advise against it. I think that's dangerous, dangerous faith. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 says, Foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they gender strife. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. When the enemy baits you in your life, don't respond, don't strive, don't even give him an answer. Michael the archangel, we talked about recently in Jude chapter 1 verse 9. When he disputed with the devil, it says, he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but just said, the Lord rebuke you. What did Michael do? He put the Lord, Yahweh, between him and Satan. That's always the right move. That's always the right move. These, these people who would try and call down Satan and go head to head with Satan and pray against Satan and even, even call him out. I say, man, I wouldn't do it. When faced with difficult situations and I don't have an answer, the last person I want to talk to is Satan. The last person I'm going to rage against. See, Satan's a rager. Like Rabshikah, that's what he does. He rages against his enemy. But our God would call us to wise counsel. I don't talk to Satan. I talk to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I need your help. Lord, I don't have any idea how to deal with this situation. Lord, I trust you. Lord, you are my shelter, my rescue, my salvation. Lord, you are my fortress. You are my God. It's nothing but wisdom to do like Michael did to keep the Lord between you and the enemy. This is something we've got to understand regarding spiritual warfare. When Satan taunts, hold your tongue. And if you speak anything, you speak it to the Lord. Don't confront the enemy. Talk to Jesus. I've got more biblical examples for this if you'd like one. This is an interesting story in the book of Acts, chapter 19. About seven Jewish boys called the sons of Sceva... It's an obscure story. Let me read this to you. Verse 13 of Acts 19. Some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, these are non-believers. These are not Christian guys. They're Jewish guys. But they've heard that speaking Jesus against an evil spirit works. So now they're going around and they're, they're saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Check this out. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. True story. So, so you can go head to head with the enemy if you want to. You can try and battle Satan, call him down, but you might end up wounded and bruised and naked. Or you can just say, Jesus, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, you are my strength. Lord Jesus, stand between me and the enemy. Lord, go before me. Put your faith in the counsel of Jesus. Don't try to fight the enemy. You can't win that fight. But he already did. So, that's what Hezekiah finally does. It says, guys, just be quiet and watch this. Verse 1 of chapter 19. When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. He covered himself with sackcloth. And I love this. He entered the house of the Lord. Hezekiah goes straight to the temple. And then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered in sackcloth, to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for the children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. What's he saying? He's saying, We're so tired. It's like a woman who has been going through labor. Penelope, I'm thinking of you right now. A woman in labor, and she's so tired when it comes time to, to actually give birth. I don't want to push anymore. I don't want to push anymore. I can't. I, just, I can't do it any longer. And that's what Hezekiah is saying. We're to the point of birth, but we can't fight this fight. We can't handle this. Where do you go in the day of distress and rebuke and rejection? When you're feeling defeated or intimidated or just spent by the big mouth threats of the enemy, where do you go? I've heard it too many times, gang. I just don't have the energy to go to worship tonight. I'm just too tired to get up this Sunday morning and be with brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll go next week. This week has just been too hard. And you know what we do? We deny ourselves the very place we need to be, the house of the Lord. It is the best place to be. Last Wednesday night, last Wednesday night followed for me several very disappointing days. Some things had gone on. I'm not going to get into tonight. But walking down here, I was tired and disappointed and a little dejected and thinking, I'm glad I draw a paycheck because I think we cancel tonight based on how I feel. It's one of those paycheck nights for Pastor Rick. <laughs> and I sat down and we started worshiping. And that's all I needed. And then we prayed. And then we got into the Word. And by the time I went home, I had faith again. So it's not just the pastor telling his people, Come, my children, and be with me on Wednesday night. (laughs) Gather around me on Sunday morning. You know what? It is you and me, a people, we need the Lord. And we need times of worship. And we need to be in the Word. And we need to be together. It changes us. The very place we need to be when we're depressed and down and dejected is right here. But sometimes it's the hardest place to get to, isn't it? I need it, but I have trouble getting there. When I don't want to be here is the best time to be here. Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 2 verse 20, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. When the enemy's raging and spewing out all kinds of distractions and anger and threats, and the world seems difficult, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. This is why Hezekiah is listed among the great kings. Because when everyone else in Judah is shuttering up their windows and bolting up their doors, Hezekiah, he went to the house of the Lord. And number four... Hezekiah's faith expands in prayer. His faith expands in prayer. My friends, great faith is not manufactured in grandiose schemes and plans. Great faith is assembled with the building blocks of small prayers. Great faith expands, gang, with small prayers. 
This is the opposite of what most of us think in our human mentality. I've got to do big things for God. Hey, before you do big things for God, how about just saying, Lord, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes. Any great work of any man across history is always, when it's a great work in terms of God's greatness, it's always preceded by seasons of prayer. And usually long seasons of prayer. Years of prayer. I've, I know I've shared this before, but seven months before our first Bible study for the bridge, when Sean and I didn't have any idea where we were supposed to go or what we were supposed to do, we joined with a small group of people and just started praying. And I thought we'd have an answer in a week or two. And then maybe in a month and a half. And then maybe after the third month, God, are you going to give us an answer, some direction? And we just kept praying. It was precious. And I'll, I'll tell you why to this day, Jeff and Penelope are two of Cheryl's and my best friends in the world. Because every time we got together, if we went out to see a movie, if we watched a video, if we played a game, whatever, at the end of the night before they left, we stood in the, in the entryway, you remember this, of our house, and we prayed. Small prayers. Lord, we don't know what's coming next. Show us. And that's how He works. And that's how we build faith. It's not the boast of the big mouth that impresses the Lord. It's the prayer of the poor in spirit. Verse 4. Hezekiah is still speaking and he's sending this message to Isaiah. He says, Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. And so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid, afraid of the words that you have heard of, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libda. For he had heard that the king had left Lachish. And when he heard them say concerning Terhaka, the king of Cush, Behold, he's come out to fight against you. He sent messengers again to Hezekiah. So what's going on here? They're distracted. The Assyrian army has another battle, another front that they're having to fight. And so Rabshiku goes back and finds out they're fighting over here. But he doesn't want Hezekiah to get off the hook yet. He still wants to keep him as close as possible. So he sends a messenger. He sends a letter, verse 10. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did not the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed earlier uh, or destroyed deliver them? Even Gozan and Haran and Rezep and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of the Sepharvaim and of Hina and of Eva? And these are all nations and all peoples that had been wiped out by Assyria. So he sends this letter. And I love what Hezekiah does with this. Watch this. The faith, his faith is expanding. Verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone O Yahweh are God Hezekiah doesn't write a reckless reply he doesn't fire off a menacing memo or an emotional email Hezekiah takes the letter to the Lord he goes into the temple it's one of the most graphic and practical examples of prayer in all of scripture he takes this menacing threatening letter and goes into the temple and lays it out what do we do 
I know you're God. This is what they're saying, Lord. He spreads it out before the Lord. What a great example of what we're called to do. It's absolutely huge. What do you do with the problems and threats and issues of your day? Hezekiah would say, go to the house of the Lord and spread them out before them. I love this. I heard a story. Someone reading this passage. A man heard this in a church and the next day came to the church early in the morning with his mortgage statement. (laughs) And spread it out before the Lord. Why not? Practical prayer. Here's my problem, Lord. I'm putting it before you because you're the one who can deal with this. And by the way, Hezekiah is no longer asking Isaiah to pray for him. Did you catch that? The first time, back there in verse 3, verse 2, he sent Eliakim over to Isaiah. Go tell Isaiah to pray for us. Tell Isaiah we need some help. Tell Isaiah to be prayerful. This time, Hezekiah is going directly to the temple himself. He spreads the letter out himself. He prays to God himself. And his faith expands for it. Philippians 4, 6, Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Man, bring it to the Lord, spread it out before Him, and let Him deal with it. And in verse 20, I love this. Then Isaiah, the son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. There's really something to this, gang. Confirmation. Confirmation. A lot of times we ask people to pray for us and we say, Pray and tell us what you think we should do. Hezekiah is not doing this. Hezekiah prays and waits and Isaiah comes to him and says God's heard you the Lord was listening and the big difference is Hezekiah you came to him this time yourself and because you prayed the Lord has heard you know we have a prayer network here at the bridge if you need prayer for anything you can call up Jackie Shorthouse or, or Mary Ann Stickles call them up and immediately you can get the prayer need it goes out I mean like that to a group of people who start praying right away. We have a prayer team that meets on Thursdays and spend a vast majority of the day on Thursday praying together over the needs of this body and over the things that are coming up. We have an early morning men's prayer group that meets here on Thursday morning. Guys, every Thursday morning at 6 o'clock, if you want to pray, be here at the barn. There's a group of men who are praying. We have a pastor of prayer. I know it sounds unique, it shouldn't be, but that's Les's title, Pastor of Prayer. That's what his main focus is. What's my job description? Pray. Okay, I can do that. And you know Les can. We even have people with lanyards walking around on Sunday mornings just in case someone's looking for someone to partner up and pray with them. But listen to me. None of these things are ever to replace you praying to the Lord yourself. They help. They're encouraging. They're there to support and bear up this body, but they are not replacements for your personal relationship. Hezekiah goes to Isaiah, pray for me. Okay, great, he does. But the real power is when Hezekiah goes directly to the Lord himself because there is no mediator between man and God but the man Jesus Christ. And we go direct. And we are allowed this precious relationship with God And so there's a change in Hezekiah's language from verse 4 to verse 19. There's there's an expansion of his faith. Yahweh is now not just Isaiah's God to whom the prophet can go for Hezekiah. Now, Yahweh is Hezekiah's God because Hezekiah prays to him. Verse 21. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem, whom you have reproached and blasphemed. Or whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Man, when Isaiah says this, I can almost imagine an earthquake happening. Who have you been raging against, Rabshika? The Holy One of Israel. (laughs) 
Through your messengers you have reproached the Lord and have said, With my many chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down all its tall cedars and its choice cypresses. And I entered its farthest lodging place, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters. And with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times, the Lord is saying, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose, (laughs) and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. How does the Lord accomplish this? Come back Sunday and we'll find out. Let's pray together. Father, you are an awesome God. And we are so, Lord, just overwhelmed to be in your presence. And we are so encouraged, Father. And we, like Hezekiah, we are a people of faltering faith. But God, when we can just come before you, when we recognize you in your holy temple and we can be silent, our faith expands. Father, would you, would you make us a prayerful people? Lord, send the Assyrians if that will make us come to you and get on our knees. Let the enemy rail and rage. Father, if even those moments of fear would bring us to a place where we recognize there is nowhere else, there is no one else to whom we can go. And Father, bring us to you in prayer. And Lord, expand and grow our faith that we, like Hezekiah, will cling to you and trust you with all that we have and all that we are. Lord Jesus, all praises and honor and wisdom and power and glory are yours. And we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.